0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben Folks and chad dundas
1: that's right Welcome in, everyone, to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and Junkie.com. it's the kid, Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm the kid now? Uh, yeah, I just came up with that on the fly, on the spot.
2: 33 years old. Well, I mean... Look can... at me. Look at me right <laughs> no. now.
1: No, you bring up a valid point, now that I've really... Taking a gander at, at the at, at your face, the kid does not seem entirely applicable, uh, and I don't know that it would replace all businessmen folks as as your going nickname anyway. Your working nickname.
2: That's right. I don't have time for your bullshit.
1: But I mean, I gave it a shot.
2: I appreciate that about you. Our listeners appreciate that about you. Well, we've that already we've virtually ar- nothing else. We've
1: already ground this into the, into a dead stop, just an awkward <laughs> halt. Less than a minute into the show, probably. But I know it's going to pick you up, Ben. And that is uh, this this announcement. I think you're really going to like this week's music that we use between between rounds comes to us courtesy of podcast listener Brett Scanlon and his comedy rap outfit called Big Titties and the Kids. Wow,
2: that does pick me up. I knew
1: that that would brighten your day. It brings little bit a smile
2: up. right to my face.
1: So yeah, it's a are big... you sure
2: it's a comedy rap outfit? Because you might have just in- insulted them.
1: No, he assured me that it was uh, okay. humorous in nature. Okay. So yeah, that's big titties and the kids, and we'll put a link to their uh, their SoundCloud page on our uh, on our website.
2: Wasn't that the name of one of those unpublished Faulkner novels?
1: Right. Yes. Yeah.
2: Okay. I thought so.
1: The original draft of the English patient, I believe, (laughs) was called Big Titties and the Kids. Yeah,
2: I knew it sounded familiar.
1: Anyway, this week's co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, not to make any more terrible zombie jokes, but Jose Aldo did kind of beat Chan Sung Jung until pieces of his body literally started falling off. Not literally. And in round number two, no, it was literally. He separated his shoulder. It didn't fall off. It fell off the rest of his body. That's what happens when you separate your shoulder. It, it becomes was connected
2: to his body. So. By skin?
1: <laughs> by skin alone. Skin alone.
2: Anyway. You are going to get a doctor in here. For Moving on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea if that's what it means when you separate your shoulder. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, round number two, Leoto Machida and Phil Davis and the robbery that wasn't. And in round number three, so anything cool going on in Bellator these days? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff and another installment of Master Tweet Theater, led as always by Sir Nigel Longstock. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail.
2: Listener mail.
1: The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Luke W. W. And he writes, according to a recent article by Dr. Johnny Benjamin, quote, the current medical position is that any athlete, especially a contact athlete who has a, quote, reasonable degree of suspicion of concussion must be barred from further competition, end quote. The doc goes on to explain that reasonable degree of suspicion of concussion should have prevented basically every great slugfest and comeback fight we've ever seen from continuing basically as soon as one guy got rocked. As a rabid fight fan with a thirst for brutal violence and a nurse in training with serious concerns about how many retired MMA fighters will be turning up with CTE in the, near, in the coming years, I am torn, to say the least. Are obviously late stoppages just the tip of the iceberg? Should the level of damage we expect to see before a fight is stopped actually be much, much lower? And do athletic commissions require referees to have any level of medical training whatsoever?
2: Wow, there's a lot of inner conflict I can feel in this question. First of all, male nurse, bro. (laughs) Dude, you're a male nurse, bro.
1: Male nurse, bro. Uh,
2: Now that we got that out of the way, right? uh, Now we can go back to being reasonable adults. You know, it's one of those things where when you start talking about what you should do if you want to keep your brain intact, you kind of have to stop at the point where you make the decision to become a professional fighter. It's like I don't know if you even
1: walk into the fight gym.
2: Yeah. I don't know if you saw uh, the New York Times had an article out about uh, makers of helmets for football and how they put various different warnings and stuff on them. And Did one not see of them, that
1: because I do not trust the liberal media.
2: I know you don't. That's why you get all your news exclusively from the crazy old man across the street. That's right. Uh, he knows what's really going on. Yeah. Everyone, the rest of you are just sheep. That's right. Uh, one – I can't remember which football helmet maker it was – had a warning on there that basically said uh, there's no way the helmet can totally protect you if you are worried about your brain and neck and process and death. Don't play football. They worded it a little better than I just did right now. But uh, that kind of sentiment seems to me like we, we should acknowledge that that is basically true when it comes to like combat sports and football and dangerous sports like that. Like the, the level of risk that's always going to be there uh, to begin with, it's kind of unsafe. We acknowledge that. And then we just take steps to make it like more reasonably safe within what we already agree are unsafe boundaries.
1: Yeah. And you do, you make a good point. Like you're never going to completely legislate, uh, head trauma out of fight sports probably because, you know, being able to punch each other in the head is one of the major components of the, of the sport itself. Uh, I don't know that MMA is ever going to get to the point where, uh, you start asking or the they, you know people the mainstream anyway starts asking really serious questions about uh, uh about making significant changes in the action to try to prevent head injuries the way that they're starting to do now in football which i think we speaking of the tip of the iceberg as luke w brings up we're only now just starting to figure out how exactly how fucking terrible for you playing football is which makes me think that we have no earthly idea how terrible for you being a professional fighter actually is it's no, probably a lot worse for you than we imagine yeah. and uh, we, we don't shouldn't kill like, ourselves it's not good for you right no
2: and we don't we don't have the like the timeline necessary to tell what the long, long-term effects of like a, a real professional MMA career are because the guys just aren't that old yet.
1: Right. On one hand, I think the, we're a little bit lucky because you could make the case that the, the modern rules of MMA were actually devised with the idea of, of fighter safety in mind, whereas the modern rules of professional boxing were, were devised uh, with the uh, intent of making everyone more money and like making the sport more palatable to the consumer. So in that regard, you know, we're lucky that that the 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 rules were devised during modern times and that uh that they did it with keeping guys as safe as possible in mind. Um yeah, yeah if we were so concerned about about head injuries that we wanted to to stop fights especially mma fights way way sooner uh then you would probably just have to think about doing away with the sport right because right. You, you already step in to stop the fight way sooner than uh than you would in say a boxing match where a guy gets the benefit of of being delivered a standing eight count and then uh sent back out there for more for more trauma in an mma fight if you get in big enough trouble that the referee in a boxing fight would deliver a standing eight count, you're probably going to stop the fight anyway.
2: Yeah. You know, it's one of those things too where when we look at some of these fights where you think like, okay, that guy probably sustained some head trauma and then continued on past it. I mean, what do we want the, the referee really to do in that situation? Like the referee's... I mean, he asked a good question about what kind of medical training the referees need to undergo, but I don't think you can really ask. I mean, look at the, how much trouble the referees have with what they have to do already. Right. You can't really ask them to think, like, watch a guy take a blow and then figure out how it's going to affect his brain in 30 years and then make a decision based on that. Like, that's just, that's kind of unreasonable of us to ask. Right. The best the referee can do for you uh, is once your arms go limp, try and stop you from taking any more blows. And even that they can't do half the time. Yeah.
1: Ah, uh, well let's move on. Second question this week comes to us from Dan O. He writes, "Can we talk about Ben Askren for a moment?" Why yes, Dan, we can. In fact, we'd love to. Yes. I promise you it'll be more entertaining than one of his fights. Ouch. Ooh. Do you think Ben Askren would be more exciting if he weren't allowed to throw strikes? I'm not even joking about this. In the first round of his last fight, he was throwing out all these crazy wrestling moves nobody else uses and chaining together submission attempts in what I considered to be a really entertaining first round. Then round two came along and he gets to the takedown again, but instead of going for the submission, he starts throwing these pitter-patter punches from the mount that had zero chance of ending the fight. Then he does the same thing in round three and round four and round five and round six and round seven before the ref realized he had better throw things to do than watch two grown men pillow fight. He could have ended the fight at any time if he just put some mustard behind his punches, but fight after fight he continues to drag things out until the universe collectively sighs and says, alright, break it up you two. Why does he do this? Is he actively trying to be the world's most boring fighter or is this the best he's got? Now, we don't talk about Ben Askren much on the show, but after watching his title defense this past week in Bellator, which is the one that that Dan writes about, uh, I thought that we should spend some time talking about ben Askren because well for a couple of different reasons number one because he seems to be one of the weirdest guys in the sport both uh from a fighting sense and from a uh personal uh interaction like post-fight interview sort of a way
2: you know what he'd say to dan if you were here right now and heard this question what would he say that dan's a communist he probably would say something anti-American like that. communist. Now, for I, th- asking I question. think that
1: in the, you know, specifically dealing with Dan's question, I feel like he brings up a couple of good points and also maybe is a little bit too hard on Ben Askren as a, as perhaps we are sort of industry wide hard on on Ben Askren. Because, you know, this last fight that he had against uh, Vitaly uh, Andre
2: Korishkov.
1: Yeah. Close enough. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I watched it. I thought it was, it was not a terrible fight, especially the first round, which Dan brings up. I thought it was super exciting. Uh, and, I, and frankly, I couldn't fucking believe that Ben Askren didn't finish it because he was out he did there. finish it? Well, yeah, in the fourth round, but I mean just in the fifth, cause that or the first, that's when he was, uh, he was really going balls to the wall trying to get a submission, probably because that was, uh, his last fight on his Bellator contract. Right. And so he wanted to, uh, get a stoppage to try to maybe drive up his, his free agent value. while simultaneously driving down the, uh, the uh, popular notion that all he does is fight for decisions. Uh, and really, I didn't feel it was that boring of a fight throughout. I thought the most boring thing about it was sort of the inevitability of it all. Like, that's
2: exactly what I was going The thing say.
1: that's boring uh, is not necessarily the way that Ben Askren behaves on the ground. I think it's kind of unfair to charge him with not punching hard enough on the ground, as as we do in this bit of listener mail. But like, Although that's uh, true. I don't know. I mean... It, for, to my to my view, it seemed like he was trying pretty hard to stop the fight all the way through in the, in this
2: last fight against... No, I I agree. Andre Koreshkov. Nailed it. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. And one of the things I wanted to note there was that he was still going for submission attempts there late in the fight. And it actually kind of surprised me that at one point, I think it was in the fourth, I think it was shortly before he finally stopped it. Uh, he locked up a head and arm choke from side control, jumped over to the other side, looked like he was going to finish that... Couldn't finish it, even though it seemed pretty apparent that Andre uh was done. Well, he was broken at that point. And then when he gave up on the choke and then went back to mount and started punching him, that became only more apparent. That you know, and it made me wonder, like, man, you had the choke pretty well locked up. Looked like you were doing the right thing, and the guy clearly didn't want to be there anymore, and still couldn't finish it. Uh, that made me wonder a little bit, but I mean, he was trying, and if, on paper, he's finished his last two, which so should theoretically shut up everybody who talks about how he's boring. But I agree with you that the thing that's boring about it, if you know, in this one, I thought was one of his least boring uh, fights as Bellator champion, uh, was that you could tell early on that okay, this is just going to happen. He, he's just going to take this guy down, yeah. and he's going to maul him on the mat until the dude has had enough, and you know, little by little, inch by inch, he wins this. Uh, And that that's not terribly exciting when you feel like there's like it's just we're waiting for the the actual end, even though we all see the end coming.
1: Yeah. And the two ways that I feel like he's really strange is that, number one, he's so unbelievably talented on the ground that, as I think Dan pointed out, he does all kinds of crazy shit that you see almost no one else do in the sport on the ground. And, And, you know especially in this most recent fight against a guy who I think was, was most notably known as a, uh, as a standup fighter. So uh Askren probably just had him outclassed on the ground and kind of felt like he could do whatever he wanted as evidenced by some of the showboating that went on while they were, while they were down there. Uh, but he seems to be that good at the ground and, and yet at the same time have 0% interest in anything having to do with standup. So, like, he's going to go out there and dive for a takedown immediately, and I guess he's going to get it. And it's hard for me to think of another guy who seems that one-dimensional in today's modern MMA landscape. And I don't mean one-dimensional necessarily as an insult, because Jesus Christ, that guy's so fucking good as a wrestler and on the ground, he, as of yet doesn't need to, to, uh, concern himself with the stand up game. I get maybe Rhonda Rousey would be similar because she hasn't, hasn't shown much of a stand up game, but has been so dominant with her judo and, and submission skills that it hasn't really come back to hurt her yet. Uh, the second thing that I think is interesting about him is his, uh, he's certainly a very, very outspoken guy, not a guy that's going to hide his feelings. Uh, he's a guy who's, who's going to, uh, crack a lot of jokes on, on the Twitter machine. And, uh, you know, some at his own expense, but in sort of that, uh, the way wrestlers do at times where it's still clear that he's the coolest guy in the room. <laughs> uh, and you know, in the post fight interview with this Bellator fight, uh, accused the crowd of being un-American because they didn't, because they didn't like his, uh, his fighting style. Uh, and I guess that sort of leads into my next point which is I do feel like he would be a really really interesting addition to the UFC welterweight division now that uh we assume that that he's you know going to be a free agent now that his Bellator did he, he didn't re up already yet did he he's, I
2: haven't heard anything Yeah yet, I didn't
1: no. I didn't think so he's reached the end of his Bellator deal so you would assume he has an interest in being a, a free agent I think he you know talent wise he'd be a really really uh interesting addition to the welterweight division I'm just not sure that he fits into the UFC with his uh with his sort of uh uh outspoken nature. It seems like he would just constantly get himself in trouble because we know that the UFC eh, doesn't necessarily appreciate that kind of dude.
2: Yeah, and you got to just wonder why the UFC would feel like they need to go out and get themselves ben asking right now. Uh, you know, and the I wrote about it in my mailbag that I think the best scenario the UFC could hope for would be to drive up the, the price for Bellator, make them pay more than they want to, to resign the guy. Uh, Cause you know, it kind of looks bad. If you have your champion, just, just bail out on you uh, and make Bellator pay too much to have a guy who people don't want to watch. Yeah, but I think it
1: may it looks bad if you're the UFC and you have a guy who is potentially one of the best welterweights in the world and is a guy that you just don't want to sign because you don't like the way he fights. Yeah, but the to Dana me, Wayne will just un- tell
2: everybody that he that he sucks anyway and that he's boring and then everybody will believe that. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, no, that's that a good point, I guess, for, for people that are gonna buy the company line. To me, it would undermine the entire uh nature of the UFC as a fight where as a place where the best fight the best. Uh, because, you know, you just look at the way Ben Askren fights and I don't think it's out of the question to think that he would be a problem for almost anyone in that welterweight division It you know, with guys in Bellator, uh, like Ben Askren, it's, it's, it can be difficult to tell, uh, how good they might be, you know, when, if they had to come over and fight the, the rest of the best in the world, because you sort of see them, uh, out of context in a way you don't, you don't really know much about the quality of, of their opponents, but I, I would like to see it, man. I would like to see him come over and and, uh, and try to take on the Rory McDonald's and Jake Ellenbergers of the hey, world. Uh,
2: I'd like to see it too. GSP jabs him to death. Johnny Hendricks knocks him out. Carlos Condit loses a split decision. There. Problem see, solved. I seem, told you I was going to go.
1: You seem very certain. Absolutely certain. All right, 100%. Uh, we'll we'll put that in the vault. So when, if and when it does actually happen, we can go back and check your work.
2: Put it in the vault.
1: Third question this week comes to us from Sam Fajentz. He writes, So Paul Daly has managed to alienate every major promotion in North America and is relegated back to the minor leagues. Oh, no, wait. Actually, the version of the story most websites are putting out is uh, Daly is ready to return to the UFC. If Paul Daly could beat a wrestler of any ability, he'd probably have been fined instead of cut in the first place. Why is it that the MMA world does every story of a fighter getting fired from their job for bad behavior, have to end with a super forced apology and a presto changeo redemption every single time. P.S. Daly's claim that 90% of men in the U.K. who go out drinking have charges of resisting arrest on their records. Are you fucking kidding
2: me? <laughs> you know, I heard a lot about this Paul Daly stuff uh, from my, my U.K. readers recently. You don't have any U.K. readers. Oh, I got, I got, I got U.K. readers. Trust me. All up in the UK. Uh, All right. Well, Uh,
1: not sure I'm buying that, but whatever. They
2: seem way more into this story than it seems like American fans are. Uh, But, you know, I don't feel like this is a, a forced apology or forced attempt by Paul Daly. I think Paul Daly has realized that it's a little colder out there than he thought it was. Uh, and that
1: in and of itself makes it a little bit forced, right? You go out on your own and realize that it's not, uh, it's not the, the, the grass is greener scenario that you thought it was going to be. And suddenly you want to come back to the UFC that that fulfills most of my requirements for forced apology. Okay.
2: You have a point there. And I don't know if I totally believe that Paul Daly really does realize that what he did, uh, trying to hit Josh Koscheck after the bell was super wrong. Uh, You know, he might feel like it was, you know, just... A bit cheeky, perhaps. A bit cheeky of him to try that. I don't know if he really understands why the UFC got so pissed off about it. But I also feel like I don't, I think people get tricked into thinking that Paul Daly is a little more relevant than he is. I mean, he has some wins recently, not against anybody really good. He seems willing to fight just kind of whoever, and he wants a a certain kind of fight, which he usually manages to get. I mean, he's still exciting. He's still knocked people out. He has that kind of appeal, but... I just don't feel like he is a complete fighter. I don't feel like we're really missing much by not having him in the UFC.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't really care where he goes or what he does. And, and, and you know, felt a little bit, I guess like Sam does here, that the the story's wondering aloud whether or not he was going to make his uh, UFC return seemed a little bit unnecessary to me. Clearly, obviously, we found out in short order that the answer was no Uh, and some breaking news uh, which occurred earlier today before we recorded recorded the podcast for once uh, that he has now signed a multi-fight deal with Bama again so uh, the answer is no he will not be headed back to the UFC and 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 I can't you know tell you that I feel like the landscape there has changed one way or the other even if he would have come back I feel like it's just sort of a a non-issue at this point
2: well and Finally, one of the things that makes me a little bit glad is that the idea that the UFC might fire a guy, Dana White might go out there, make the statement, I don't care what happens with this guy, I don't care how good he is, he's never getting back in because we just won't tolerate that behavior. It's nice to see one of those bans actually upheld uh, every once in a while, whether than Dana White making these really assertive statements that he'll then totally back up on once it seems like that's a profitable move. Uh, and when
1: it seems like the dude isn't that good anyway, right. like I mean, let's be honest you you're, you're you're totally in favor of the of of eight of uh, blackballing Ben Askren over here, but now all of a sudden you, you want to say that's it's awesome that the UFC doesn't want Paul Daly either because they're sticking to
2: their guns, man. Ain't
1: nobody, sticking to their guns. Ain't nobody
2: blackballing Ben Askren. Nobody cares enough to blackball Ben Askren.
1: <laughs> well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern for the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
2: We put the rope in proper. lets you up like a copper. Big titties in
0: the kids, man. Tight. Man, I'll hit it all night. If one egg comes loose, shit will blow like dynamite. Words had to be said. You want your are dead. Keep the plan, but old
1: tight involved the nonsense you were fed. Just give it a twist, lighting up a gift piss, and, and bust party open like a can of sun kiss Well, then aside from the wacky injury-induced ending to Chan Sung Jung's fight against Jose Aldo uh this last weekend at UFC one sixty-three, I'm not sure that there were a whole lot of surprises uh in store for the the audience at home uh and watching around the world uh during during the main event of this show perhaps the the one thing that that surprised me a little bit was uh Chan Sung Jung's sort of low key fighting style here for the most part um didn't come out with the kind of uh reckless abandon that we've seen from him in the past uh probably out of deference to Jose Aldo's unbelievable finishing ability uh did it surprise you the way that uh that uh, Chan Sung Jung fought this fight, especially considering one of the things that we know about Jose Aldo is that perhaps his only weakness is that he slows down over time.
2: You know, that's why it didn't totally surprise me, actually. It seemed like in the fourth round, when he got hurt, he was starting to turn it up a little bit and starting up the pace. And he did mention uh, when I talked to him before the fight that he had a little different approach for this fight. I think that Uh, he was willing to admit that maybe in some of his previous fights, after that Leonard Garcia fight uh, brought him so much attention, that maybe he got a little too into that zombie style of just trying to go out there and brawl with guys, and maybe that wasn't the smartest thing. I think he also probably thought that if he tried to do that against Jose Aldo, he was going to go out there and get knocked out right away, uh, which is probably true. So I think that uh, maybe his plan was to kind of keep it level for the first three rounds or so, uh, and in the hopes that maybe Aldo starts to tire and slow down a little bit, and maybe that's when you take him. That's when you turn up that the heat. Uh, and he was he was having a little more success by being a little more aggressive in that fourth round. And then, damn it, there goes the the old trick shoulder pops right out.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess my response to that would be that that sounds like an a uh, perfectly understandable strategy, and I think that uh, no one would blame. The Korean zombie, if he didn't want to go sprinting directly into the teeth of of Jose Aldo's offense. At the same time, if you go out there with a strategy that you're going to try to tucker the other guy out, uh, I'm not sure that it's a great uh, idea to try to let the other guy set the pace, which is sort of like what it seemed like uh, Chan Sung Jung did in this fight. If he if he wanted to. Uh, to try to tire Jose Aldo out, it seemed like getting in his face at least a little bit more, maybe try to engage with him in the in the grappling portion uh, a little bit more would have been the thing to do. Because at the you know the way things went, it seemed like uh, Jose Aldo was perfectly able to pace himself and and make sure that he didn't run out of gas, even if uh, even if that had been an issue for him. Which I got to say, it didn't really look like it would have been in in this fight. And uh, you know his camp talked a little bit about how this had been the easiest weight cut for him yet, coming down to, to one forty five. Uh, he seemed to be in great shape. but it, it seemed like he wasn't going to slow down in this fight. Uh, and so, yeah, from from Chan Sung Jung, just maybe a, a, a faulty strategy in some ways. Like, I feel like if you're if you're going to test the other guy's cardio, take him into deep water, as they say.
2: As they do uh, say,
1: you got to try to drag him out there, man. Yeah. You can't you can't let him set the pace the whole way.
2: Well, I feel like if you are going to try and wear the guy out, the way to do that is not necessarily with striking exchanges, especially with a guy like Jose Aldo. I think what you want to do is. Ideally, put him on his back and wear him out there with the, with wrestling and and with jujitsu on the mat. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously easier said than done. If you can't do that, then at least, you know, clinch him up there against the fence, throw some knees into his thighs and body and, and kind of just chip away at him there. Uh, and Chan Sung Jung wasn't really able to do any of that. I mean, really, the the takedown battle, Jose Aldo was firmly in control of that. He, he seemed to focus more on that once he hurt his foot uh, and knew that he wasn't going to be able to to kick his way to a certain victory the way he had in the past. But then again, I mean, I don't know why we should act terribly surprised that whatever strategy Chan Sung Jung might have had that it didn't work out against right. Jose Aldo, yeah, sure. uh, who was a huge favorite going in, and for good reason. I mean, he's a hell of a fighter. To me, what's more interesting is... Uh, here you have another fight card in Brazil, right? Uh, you got the last remaining non-interim, truly undisputed Brazilian champion in the UFC. Uh, and it seemed like this one was not as well attended as the other Brazilian fight cards we've, we've seen. It also seems like it's probably not going to be one of the bigger pay-per-views. Uh, Dana White didn't even go. He, they're doing the world tour stuff, kind of looking forward to the rest of the year. And this seemed like kind of an afterthought to the UFC. I mean, little stuff like that I think tells us that, you know, the UFC didn't even think that that was, this was that big of an event
1: yeah and you know we 've heard from Brazilian fight fans who listen to this podcast before who've who've chimed in to write us uh emails that say that uh the str- the u f c strategy of packing the card with Brazilian nobodies uh doesn 't necessarily resonate in Brazil like perhaps the company thinks it does perhaps uh, and I know that this is going to sound uh j- revolutionary, but maybe the the people who are fight fans in Brazil are much like the fight fans in other part of the, other parts of the world, in that they want to see the best fighters and not necessarily just guys who are going to uh, carry the Brazilian flag in on their backs, although clearly the Brazilian crowds do muster a lot of uh, nationalism you, uh, a lot of national pride when they when they go to the live events, but yeah, no man, I feel their pain like i wouldn 't have uh, uh, if, if this was the the fourth show in in my country this year and, and it seemed like a lackluster card i 'm not sure I would have shelled out to go to go watch it either
2: yeah, and I do think that we 're starting to see a pattern that it 's not just that we 're seeing you know Brazilian nobodies on the cards, but that this pattern of having Brazilian you know hopeful somebodies fight nobodies that seems to be a recurring thing that. You know, everybody talks about the how well the Brazilian fighters seem to do in Brazil against Americans or Europeans or fighters from wherever. Uh, I think a lot of that is matchmaking. That it seems like a lot of the times uh, the Brazilians get a little easier draws in Brazil. Uh, and I, I definitely think we, we did see some of that. But I, I feel like we talked about it last week a little bit. Uh, I wrote about it a little this week that if you compare side by side this fight card and the UFC on Fox 8, and I don't really see why one of them is a pay-per-view, and why one of them is, I mean, and that's just not even with the hindsight of what we know about how it turned out, just as far, you know, lighter weight title fight, higher weight uh, contender fight as the co-main, and then a couple other fights filling it out. Uh, I mean, the free one had Robbie Lawler for crying out loud. This one had no Robbie Lawler. It was like when you and I were talking about it earlier, and we're saying, it seems like the UFC maybe is kind of just saying, hey, this one is a pay-per-view because we said so.
1: Yeah, this one was low on the Lawler Index, I guess. Uh, <laughs> or high? They were already no, shackled no. to the idea of this being a pay-per-view, though, when they thought Anthony Pettis was still going to be involved. I'm not That's sure true. that Anthony Pettis moves the needle a ton in terms of uh, – in terms of pay-per-view buys, but I think that they expected a more competitive featherweight title fight, at least when when he was thought to have been the challenger uh, for Jose Aldo's title. Instead, we get Chan Sung Jung, who uh, is as game as 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 ever. He, you know, that guy doesn't doesn't lack for uh, for gameness, as you'd say in the parlance of the of the field. Uh, at the same time, you know, Aldo was able to go out there and put in what I thought was a really complete performance, even uh, even after he breaks his foot. You know, he's he's uh, he looked pinpoint with his striking. He threw a lot fewer leg kicks than we normally see from him, but uh mixed in a few takedowns just to I guess show the world that he can do it. Um and, and comes out with a with a dominant victory that uh that I guess keeps him up there on the pound for pound lists. After the fight was over, uh he sort of acted like, eh, you know, if you twist my arm I'll go up to one fifty five and uh and fight the guys there. You know, only if you oh, but you're gonna have to really want me to do it though. Um are you buying that? You think you think Aldo moves up? Uh, uh, I, it seems to me like the featherweight division is both getting to the point where now it could probably survive if Jose Aldo moved up, whereas I'm not sure that always would have been the case. But at the same time, I feel like uh, it's a pretty interesting division, and I would hate to see it deprived of its dominant champion.
2: That's true. I, I feel like, like you said, I can kind of make a case either way, but I, I feel like there's at least one more good featherweight fight for him, the the division is you're right, kind of first now getting to that point where you have some options there. uh I think he, he has one more successful uh defense. uh You know, I could see. Well, it better
1: be against Ricardo Lamas or his head is going to explode. That dude is just mad that he hasn't got to fight Jose Aldo yet.
2: And you can't really blame him too much. No, I think, you know he's, he's for, got a point. Ricardo Lamas, Cub Swanson, either one of those guys would be fights that I, I'd be interested in seeing. Uh, Jose Aldo, but again, if he did go up to lightweight, the thing for me is that sure, I want to see Jose Aldo fight the lightweight champ, but at the same time, man, lightweight leads the least help. Lightweight is where you have the most talent right now. Yeah, it feels like you're taking something away from the featherweight division that it not maybe can't stand to have taken away. Uh, or maybe could just barely survive losing and adding to one of the most talent-rich divisions in the entire sport, let alone the UFC. Uh, you know, it would be one of those things where I would be interested in seeing him go up. Uh, and it is you're the super fight, so I'd be interested in seeing him go up for a one. But we better get
1: one super fight in <laughs> yeah. before the end of the year.
2: I'd be interested in like kind of a one-time deal featherweight champion versus lightweight champion, uh, if the understanding was that you know then. He goes back down or something. Or if he becomes lightweight champion, then fine, he could stay. And, and maybe we force whoever was lightweight champion to go down to featherweight.
1: Yeah, like relegation, like uh, yeah. some uh, European soccer there shit. There
2: you go. I don't care if you have to cut off a foot. You got to go down to featherweight. <laughs> I'm willing to let Jose Stakes Aldo. Just jumped up, didn't they?
1: Yes, they did. Uh, I'm willing to let Jose Aldo go on one condition, and that is eight-man pride-style featherweight Grand Prix for the title.
2: Boom. Book we, it. We,
1: we get uh, Frankie Edgar uh we get uh Chad Mendez we get Ricardo Lamas, we get Cub Swanson. Swanson we get uh Eric Coke uh you throw Chan Sung Jung in there uh uh who else uh you got Dustin Poirier uh could 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 jump in there and hey that's 7 as a as your eighth man royal rumble style his music hits and he comes out uh, uh Uriah Faber what do oh. you think
2: back would... at featherweight to get his crown back I was hoping that you were going to say a really big husky dog. <laughs> well, I mean, one of those sled dogs. That's
1: a certain kind of attraction, I guess. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's going to lead us in another rendition of Master Suite Theater. And that starts right now.
2: Time again, time for us to welcome back to the podcast, friend of the show and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am fluffed and friendly. You you do seem friendly. You don't seem all that fluff, though, if I have to be honest with you.
0: Oh, really? Well, hmm. I
2: don't know. Hey, maybe that's what fluff looks like where you come from. I don't know.
0: No, that's fine. guest on your show and just immediately... <laughs> well, your appearance is not quite up to snuff today. How are you?
2: Okay, fair point. Fair point. Um those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel is going to read us off some tweets from various characters in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I are going to try and guess who those tweeters are. Sir Nigel, when you're ready. Yes, let us begin. There is a theme for this week's show. Oh,
0: of course there is. What
2: is today's theme?
0: The theme is tweeted as written. Explain that. Tweeted as written. Each of these tweets will be, will be acted, of course. I mean, acted like you've never heard. Naturally. But they will also be read in exactly the language that they originally presented. Okay, well, mm-hmm. Chad, are you ready for this?
1: I fail to see how that differentiates this episode of Master Tweet Theater
0: from any other. Well, maybe you'll just have to be patient. Well, it That's makes okay. a bigger difference this time, <laughs> I can tell you. All right. <clears throat> Tweet the first. The kid just looks calm, cool, and straight viscous. a boy, ruthless Robbie Lawler. Viscous, huh? Calm, cool, and straight viscous. Chad? Uh,
1: I assume that that's an autocorrect situation. Um, And I guess I would guess Pat Militich. I was going
2: to guess Pat Militich. I mean,
1: it's the obvious one.
2: Yeah. You took Pat Militich, so I'll say Matt Hughes. No,
0: in fact, it is the son that Pat Militich and Matt Hughes never had, Jen's Pulver.
2: Oh. Oh.
0: Calm, cool, and straight viscous. Well played. We didn't see that one coming. hmm Dripping slowly to the mat is ruthless Bobby <laughs> Lawler. <clears throat> Tweet the second. A wave of disappointment has washed over me as I realize there aren't any samples
2: today at Costco. Fail. Okay, so we're dealing with a jokester here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also someone who maybe has taken to getting their meals in sample form at Costco... That sounds to me like Big Sexy Sean McCorkle.
1: That's a good guess. See, I was going to go Matt
2: Mitrione here. Uh, the poor man's Sean McCorkle. Sure, why not? Or the other way around. Who I knows? also
1: don't understand how this one fits with the theme.
2: Well, there's a tense shift, actually.
0: This oh, one, just I mean... <laughs> read it again, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> frankly, it's shoehorned in there. there. The other theme is there are five of them. <clears throat> <laughs> Tweet the second. A wave of disappointment has washed over me as I realize there aren't any samples today at Costco.
2: I don't know Failed. if that's really a tense shift. It has yeah, washed over him as has. he realized. I
0: mean, we go from the present perfect... All right, just tell us who the fuck it is. <laughs> um, it is Joey
2: Beltran! Aww... Shift your tense, <laughs> Joey Beltran. I feel like so far, Chad, we're, we're making guesses for the right reasons and just coming up empty. Yeah,
1: no, our methods have been sound, but results are lacking so far. Okay, let's press forward. The
0: game becomes more difficult as you get better. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Tweet the third. Watching I Am Legend. Forgot what a great movie this is. She about the
2: stupid ending, though. Do you think that's shame about the stupid ending? Is that, what you th- is that what we're assuming here? Yeah, that seems, that seems like it's probably right. Or shit about the stupid ending? Um, okay, so someone who has sense enough to realize that that is a stupid ending, and I am legend, uh, I'm going to say my man Joe Benavidez.
1: Interesting. I'm going to go from context of previous master tweet theaters and guess a guy who seems to tweet a lot about what he's watching on television and i suppose the movies um and go mike bisbing here
2: question is was he watching the movies on fx which we know got the movies
1: i don't know that they have that in england but i'm going to guess at bisbing
2: okay
0: Hmm. Well, the slogan in
2: England is, have the movies. <laughs> and
0: it is! It is uh, Michael Bisping. Is that right! You're correct, sir! Wow,
2: All right, now do what you wanted to do and read the tweet in your terrible My- Michael Bisping voice.
0: Watch legend! Forget what a guy says! It's perfect! I am legend! God damn it, it gets worse! It Watching, gets worse every time I am you do it! it no basement. longer
1: resembles a human voice.
0: No! <laughs> it's like when your speaking spell breaks. That's Michael Bisping.
1: <clears throat> anyway, let's not let that terrible impression overshadow the fact that I got that one right.
2: Okay, all right, fine.
0: Well then, Ted Dennis. Uh, tweet the Fourth. <laughs> it's hard to stop. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> tweet the Fourth. Failure is just a part of the process of success and of finding out who you are. Chatri Sitong.
2: Huh,
1: bit of a run on there run on tweet
2: mm-hmm. is there any
0: punctuation whatsoever in that tweet? In fact, it's perfectly punctuated, so well punctuated that I initially doubted it came from the tweeter in question. Well, that's a
1: copy and paste job then, right?
2: okay, probably a copy and paste job. uh you know who loves quoting people?
1: I do I do know Henzo Gracie. oh well, that's an interesting guess and but a smart one because we've seen Henzo Gracie become a regular here. Mm-hmm uh almost as though he and Sir Nigel have some sort of connection in the past.
2: Some history together. A uh, well I know two
1: other people that really like quoting people on, on Twitter, and that is Ariane Celeste uh, Benchemal Lopez. Lopez Smith O'Neill Jackson. Uh, and also the poet Philip Baroni. Uh this seems like more of a poet Philip Baroni one, but I'm gonna go Ariani.
2: Whoa, A lot of zigging and zagging in that one. Well, I feel
1: like that uh, Philip Baroni probably tweeted something better than this for use in Master
2: Tweet Theater at some point this week. Something like about taking a shit at the Orleans Casino or something. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so Nigel? Well, sir, you overthought
0: Uh, it. It (laughs) is
2: the poet Philip
0: Baroni. You know because it's about how failing leads to success.
2: (laughs) That is kind of a giveaway. Now that you think about uh, yeah. it. Yeah,
0: damn it! I overthought it. Okay, all right. Speedy recovery to the poet. Hmm. Tweet the fifth. If dogs had freedom like humans do, how fat would they be? Ha ha. It's
2: war machine.
1: Is it? You know that for a fact. It's war machine. I. I mean, okay. I guess. I, I. I do. I have to guess someone else, even though
0: you seem so sure.
2: Do whatever you want, man. It doesn't matter at this point. <laughs>
1: All right, uh, I guess I'll go with War Machine as well.
0: It is! It is War Machine! He is tweeting as if Phil Baroni had died and it was safe to tweet that good.
2: <laughs> uh, I would also like it noted that War Machine tweeted and then later deleted a tweet about how he had not been getting enough pow-pow lately because of, quote, too much chlamydia. Ooh, then, ouch. Then deleted that one. Uh, you... Leading me to wonder, what would be the exact right amount of chlamydia?
1: Ugh. Well, that makes it sound like... Uh, Dating a porn star may not be all apple pie and, uh, yeah. and good times. Who would have thought there might be some downside?
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like right now it's one chlamydia per pow pow, I believe.
2: <laughs> well, thus ends another rousing edition of Master it? Tweet Theater. Are we done? That's yes, five. Tweet oh, the that film. went fast. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, so Nigel, what do you got going on?
0: Well, it's funny you should ask. I was just about to go into rehearsals on a musical version of The Life of War Machine, but we couldn't get the rights. And so we've created a new musical that is essentially about War Machine, but is about a man who fights and fucks his way through the world of charitable giving. And what's this called? It's called Help Machine. And it's about a guy who's exactly like War Machine, pretty much. Please tell me
2: you play the lead role.
0: Oh, I do. He'll do anything to get that money to fight children's cancer.
2: (laughs) Well, that was another edition of Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel (laughs) (laughs)
0: Longstop.
2: Chad, I don't know what they're judging. Just listen to the crowd and they'll tell you what happened. That, my friend, was Leoto Machida on the mic moments after losing a decision to Phil Davis at UFC 163. Mm -hmm. Appealing to the power of the people. That's right. Who have always stood firmly behind (laughs) Leoto Machida and his fighting style.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's weird, man. You lose a fight, you feel like maybe you should have won, and suddenly you decide you do care what the people think yeah. If you're Lyoto Machida.
2: When they didn't like you beating Shogun Hua via decision, well, hey, these people, they just don't understand. They don't understand fighting, man. Well, okay,
1: first of all, How'd you score that fight? Uh, well, here's the thing about that. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I had family in town this weekend, so I didn't get to watch oh, the pay-per-view live go.
2: here. We fucking go. Well, here's,
1: I mean, I think this is a valid point. By the time I got the chance to go back and catch up on the fights, I already knew what the outcomes were. And, uh, I, that's, I don't like to do it that way because I guess that it's possible that, you know, knowing what happened affected my perception of them. Um, and, Uh, so so yeah, you have to, I have to, I feel like I have to put that out there. I I feel like I watched him under different circumstances, uh, uh, than, than everyone else did. But with that said, um, I watched this fight for a second time today and I thought that the first two rounds while very close, both rightfully went to Phil Davis, uh, It'd be just because, um, and then obviously because you're I'm, a
2: wrestling mark just, because you see a takedown and you just lose your fucking mind. No, I
1: don't think that really has anything to do with it. I had Machida winning the third. Um, but, but I guess in the end, uh, I, I have to go with the judges and I know that that is not necessarily the, the, the popular opinion. Uh, but, uh, that, that's how I saw it. Nonetheless, and I think, uh, I, I'm almost, I almost want to say that I think the person that you think when, won this fight, uh, is just sort of a further commentary on the subjective nature of scoring in this sport. I think it it all comes down to the stuff that you value and, uh, and the stuff that, that appeals to you maybe in, in, in terms of deciding who won. I mean, you take this, the first round, for instance, uh, where Machida has the one really uh, uh, showy, Uh, combination that he, that he maybe sort of lands, uh, pushing Phil Davis back against the cage. That was really Machida's only bright spot in that round. Uh, prior to that, I thought Davis had a slight advantage on the feet. Then Machida throws that, that combo, which I think once you watch the replay becomes apparent he didn't really land any of it, uh, Davis immediately gets up, takes him down, controls the rest of the round from the top. Doesn't do a by the ton. rest of the
2: round. You mean like fifteen seconds?
1: It's like a minute. It's over a minute. Is it over a minute? Yeah, I, I'm okay. pretty sure. Uh, but uh, uh, he doesn't do a ton of damage. But at the same time, unless you are a guy that thinks that that one combo turns the 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 entire round uh, in, in favor of Machida, I just don't see how you score it for him uh and it maybe it would be a different story if he like came close to stopping Phil Davis or in some way uh dropped him with that combo or 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 made it look uh you know like he had put Phil Davis in significant danger i didn't see that there so for me it's hard to uh to know how he wins that round without
2: the takedown what what would you score that round
1: uh, It would be real even after that combo i would say but so, I mean that's an unfair question because without the takedown like
2: true but I mean I think that one of the things that one of the reasons why I feel like people put I feel too much weight on takedowns even if they lead to nothing is that it's really easy to see okay one guy wanted to do something there and he did it and even though the other guy didn't want him to do it I mean it's hard it's hard to miss that when you know one guy picks the other dude up and throws him on the ground uh, where one dude you know charges forward with a combination we could argue about how much of that really hurt phil davis or anything it's a, or you know if a guy is slipping a jab just barely and and coming back with something that's a little easier to miss uh, so i feel like and especially guys have learned how to manipulate the judges with those takedowns like okay close round got to get a takedown in the last minute that'll seal it for me and it's one of those things where I think we kind of stopped arguing about whether that should be the case, and people just accepted that it is. Mm-hmm. That if it's a close round and you get a takedown, down your round. You know, as long as you can keep the guy there and he doesn't get up and get the takedown back. Uh, and you hear fighters talk about it sometimes where they're like, oh, he took me down earlier in the round, so I was thinking I got to get that back in order to even up the round. Um, seems like kind of a weird way we go about talking about it. I mean, I think the fact that we can argue about this decision now proves that it's one of those decisions where you couldn't get too mad either way. And I think that Phil Davis had a good point when he was saying, you know, after a fight like that where you go to the judges, you have forfeited your right to be upset. I think that's something that you and I have said before, that when it's that close, you don't really get to be too mad about it because you allowed it to be that close and you know that, you know, it's basically a coin flip at that point. But when I was watching it live, uh, I felt like Machida had won rounds one and three uh, you know, Phil Davis's best round, I thought was the second round. It wasn't even uh, a great round necessarily for him. Uh, I was expecting Leo DiMachita to get that decision. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't standing on my chair and booing with the, the crowd in Rio, uh, but I, I was a little surprised at that one. I also, though, I, I feel like some of that is just going to be inherent in Machita's style, man. I mean, the way he fights like that, you look at the punch stats numbers afterwards and you're like, Man, you you landed a a pretty high percentage of your punches compared to Phil Davis, but the judges don't they don't notice that they, they're not going like oh wow he's not missing many punches I mean they like to see a dude get busy judges reward busier fighters and I think that's what Phil Davis showed us here.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that in the past that Machida's fighting style seems uh, almost tailor made to lose decisions if if you're judging them uh via the unified rules in a three round fight it's like he exists in the margins kind of he does a lot of a lot of motion a lot of inactivity uh and and kind of hunt and hunts and packs his way around the outside uh, and it seems like that's just not a style that's gonna win you a lot of favor with the judges, which seems like a weird thing to say since he did win like four or five de- decisions in a row between like two thousand six and, well, and and two thousand eight or something like, like that. Like
2: we beat Dan Henderson by decision, and it was one of those where it was like, okay, well we recognize you won, man. Then we'll kind of keep you in this holding pattern in the light heavyweight division, but you don't really vault forward based on that win i mean a lot of the things that he does well is by stopping the other guy from doing what he wants but that's kind of like a negative success rather than the dude who comes you know straightforward guns blazing uh and it's hard to ignore what he's doing you know the same reason that it's hard to ignore takedowns uh in the judge's eyes i mean to me also though for phil davis that it seems like coming off of this kind of win like it should be a big deal for him yeah absolutely. you know he beat machida who you know beat the the guy who was a previous number one contender and dan henderson he'd be the guy who's been kind of kind of hang around that top contender list who's been promised the title shot over and over again uh and yet it doesn't seem like anybody's even talking about it was right after phil davis won that fight the ufc goes out there and like well we think if glover Teixeira has a good fight uh he's getting the next crack of the title and phil davis got to be sitting there going i just beat machida Right. What the hell, man?
1: Right. And I think that that, again, reflects poorly on the nature of the rules in this sport and and maybe the nature of the action itself. I mean, it certainly doesn't help your case if you're Phil Davis, that the owner of the UFC comes out immediately after your fight is over and tweets that he thought the other guy won all three rounds. You know what I mean? And so I think you're right in saying that Phil Davis doesn't take a significant step forward toward uh, being a, a title contender with this victory. But at the same time, like that I think just underscores what a weird situation we're in, both with the rules and with this with this sport itself it's just like you know the the tenor of of Dana white's tweet was. Oh, man, you know, you can't leave it in the hands of the judges, which is, as everyone knows who listens to this show, my least favorite thing yeah. in the world, because it's like we're dealing with a professional sport here and the judges are a major component of it. How can the like basically the official position of this company be? Oh, well, man, you just can't trust the judges. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's it's so wrong that that's that that is is is. Where, where we are in the sport, and I understand that don't leave it in the hands of the judges is essentially a talking point of the UFC because they want dudes to try to be exciting and finish fights and yada, yada, yada. Well,
2: then, But we're sitting here arguing about who deserved to win the decision, so that to, like, there can reasonable people, judges even looking for the right things and, and knowing what the hell they're doing in there, can still come up with... No, I know. And that's spots. the thing.
1: Like we, we always, we rake the judges over the coals every chance we get in, in, in like almost a, a Pavlovian response of, of groupthink in a way. It's almost like how we treat Steve Mazzagati, where we've already decided that he's a shitty ref. So well, any ref. any of the smallest infraction is going to lead to a torrent of people talking about how shitty he is. We do the same thing with the judges. Whereas a lot of times I'm, I'm not sure that the problem is not with the judges, but, but really with the rules just because of the way the unified rules are written it leaves so much up to uh to to personal discretion as to what you're gonna use to decide who wins a round and, and as we've talked about on the podcast before, heaven forbid you actually go read the, the the instructions for the judges where you can find them on UFC.com because it's, it's terrifying. If you tried to use those rules to, to judge a fight, it, it would ruin the whole sport. So, so clearly no one does. And, and because of the way the rules are written, I feel like we get into this situation time and time again, where it's like, well, did you think that Phil Davis's takedown was the most important thing? Or did you think that, that Lyoto Machida's combo was the most important thing? And And to me, you know, as long as that's the situation, you're always going to have disputed outcomes, I guess.
2: Well, Last thing before we move on from this, uh, Phil Davis, he does emerge with the victory. It's got to move him up the ranks regardless of whatever you think about how it should have gone. The fact is, the way it goes down on the record books, Phil Davis beat Leo de Machida. That's three in a row from, for him. His only loss as a professional is to Rashad Evans, who then after that went on and gave John Jones to date his toughest fight. I mean, the guy's got a submission victory over your guy, Lusty Gusty, uh, Alexander Gustafson, uh, who's the next challenger for John Jones. What does this guy got to do to get a title shot, man?
1: Well, I do think that Phil Davis, Alexander Gustafson, and Glover Tashira are probably the most interesting matchups for John Jones right now in the light heavyweight division. That doesn't mean I think any of those guys are going to beat him. I, I think you would have to, to be uh, a little bit crazy to think that. But at the same time, you know, you'd think that uh, – if Jones is able to get past Gustafson, I would love it if they could figure out the timing to have Phil Davis fight Glover to because if, you know, assuming Glover to beats Ryan Bader, uh,
2: I think we can assume that in
1: their upcoming fight. That seems like a safe assumption. Uh, you'd love to see those two guys fight. Cause I think you have that fight. Then maybe you get a legitimate number one contender out of it. I think to have either Glover to or Phil Davis vault straight into the point where they're going to fight John Jones next seems like a little bit of, uh, of, of, uh you know, cutting corners to me. It seems like both guys could use at least, uh, you know, a win over, over each other to establish themselves as the true number one contender.
2: True. And I feel like uh, we're building to a John Jones, Daniel Cormier fight uh, here. If all goes as planned. Uh, so and that one feels like one I even though I can see the logical argument somebody would make against that one, uh Daniel Cormier coming in and jumping in line i and I understand that they're right to make those arguments. It's still I kind of don't care. just want to see it anyway. yeah,
1: uh, I feel the same way so that
2: would give us time but at for, the same for time, I, don't, and,
1: I don't feel like I can uh deal with it as a real uh a possibility until Daniel Cormier really does get his ass down to 205 we know you know he's he's not going there next he's fighting roy nelson or whatever but the so. plan
2: is uh, from what i hear that he's going to yeah, try and yeah, show up as we've heard, as heard as about as this we hear about
1: the plan over and over again <laughs> yes yeah I'll, I'll believe it when i see him on the scale how about that
2: okay fair enough well, let's do
1: uh are I you fighting... that's, isn't that
2: the same approach you took to dating
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Let me see him on the scale. Uh, uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And, and and then we'll get out of here. This week, Ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to flyweight prospect John Lineker, uh, now three and one in the UFC with his last two wins uh, coming via TKO uh, and his last three wins all coming in Brazil. I mean, on one end, you look at this guy and he looks like everything you want out of a flyweight. He's something like 22 and six. He's 23 years old. He's exciting. He can finish fights. But so far, he has had a tough time, speaking of the scale, actually coming in at the 125-pound limit. Uh, this past weekend, he missed weight for the second time, this time by 4 pounds, I believe, tipping the scales at 129 pounds. So this week, hey, John Lineker, are you fucking kidding me? You're supposed to be in my flyweight top 10, but you're going to make it awfully hard for me to continue to justify that unless you can actually consistently make the weight all the time. Are you fucking kidding me?
2: Fucking kidding me? My are you fucking kidding me goes out to UFC octagon girl, Ariane Celeste. Interesting. Uh, who this weekend uh, tweeted and then has since deleted uh, just a picture uh, of her, uh, I believe in Chicago at uh, Lollapalooza. Again, in Chicago. And the tweet just said enthusiastically, Town." Really? Are you fucking kidding me? Arius? Are you fucking kidding me? I
1: don't even know what that's supposed to
2: mean. Well, yeah. Boston is Bean yes, Yeah. Also, this—that's no, this, that's uh, where I, the confusion comes in. Did I mention uh, that uh, this tweet took place basically during UFC 163? I know that they had uh, Brazilian Octagon girls there to work the thing, uh, which I think is nice, get a little variety in there, um, but even the you know the ufc president isn't there the ufc octagon girl would rather be at some concerts misidentifying cities uh are you fucking kidding me are you fucking kidding me i don't know which cities which
1: well that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three Ben, I don't know if you've heard, but Tito Ortiz and uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson are going to fight each other in uh, Bellator's first ever pay-per-view effort coming up on uh, November second. I think I speak for the entire co event podcast when I say, "Are you fucking kidding me? No, are
2: you fucking kidding me?" Let's get that out of the way.
1: But uh, as oh, we were- oh, by
2: the way, we got a ton of listener mail that basically says, "Yes, are yes, you fucking we kidding did."
1: Me about uh, this? Those dudes got together for a press conference or something today in uh, LA and I know that you at least watched it or called in or no, something. I didn't damn call thing.
2: in. No. I watched the live stream though. Uh, the MMA Heat's live stream on YouTube.
1: Excellent. Uh, bring us up to date for those of us that had actual stuff to do today.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. That then like anybody's buying that chat. Um Look, man, you already know how this thing went. You didn't need to watch it necessarily. My uh, guess
1: is there's a lot of bullshitting going on. A lot
2: of bullshitting. Okay. Good. Well, and maybe not didn't, even. And I didn't have to watch it. Maybe then. not even bullshitting, but just like. Wildly optimistic statements. I'm going to go ahead and
1: guess both guys are in the best shape of their lives. Uh, Uh, Have
2: rediscovered their hunger and passion Uh for MMA. They're
1: ready to turn things around. Yeah.
2: Uh, Uh, I'm going to guess. Miraculously, totally physically. I was
1: just going to say, my guess would be both guys are finally healthy.
2: Yeah. Finally healthy. How about that? Uh, Kind of amazing. Uh, Okay. Here's one of the things I thought uh, was interesting to come out of this, though. Uh, Bjorn Rebney to set the scene for you. It's Rampage on one side, Bjorn Rebney in the middle, and then Tito Ortiz on the other side. Uh, Bjorn Rebney dealing with a lot of the uh, the practical questions about how Bellator's first pay per view is going to work. When asked how much Bellator's pay per view would cost, he said that that was going to vary depending on the distributor, uh, hmm. from thirty five dollars to forty to forty five. Highly likely, he said that, that it will not in any uh, market exceed fifty dollars for the pay per view. Okay, it seems weird to me that it could vary that much. Yeah, for sure. Also, Definitely. can we please be in the market where it's like fifteen
1: bucks or well, something? Here's my question. All right, well let's just let's get this out of the way first. Uh, clearly, much of the interest in a Bellator pay-per-view from you and from me and from people who consider themselves to be hardcore fans of the sport is going to depend on what the rest of this card looks like. And I would think to put together a uh, an even halfway interesting pay-per-view card, Bellator is going to pretty much have to throw every dude that they have that we've ever heard of before on the card. Uh, Michael Chandler is going to have to be there, uh, assumedly rematching Eddie Alvarez, uh, but maybe we can talk about that in in a minute. Uh, uh, Ben Askren is going to have to be on the card. Pat Kern is going to have to be on the card. Uh, King Moe, I assume, is going to have to make an appearance.
2: Let's say Bob Sapp versus a cartoon character. (laughs)
1: Let's say... Uh, for the sake of argument, Bellator puts together the best card it possibly can with all of those dudes present, minus Bob Sabin, the cartoon character, uh who with, are otherwise
2: engaged in Bulgaria.
1: With the uh with the uh intention that Rampage versus Tito was gonna bring in the casual fan, though dear fucking god, I can't imagine who those people would be that would be interested in watching that fight. What would you pay to watch the the, the best Bellator card on pay-per-view?
2: Uh I think a reasonable price would be thirty dollars. I was uh, going to
1: say twenty five. So we're right in the we're in the same ballpark. Anyway. I would
2: expect you to come over and chip in. I think if you get oh, so you're saying like fifteen a piece? Well, no, I was hoping we could get some other people involved in this. Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't know who those people would be. I yeah. feel like
2: you, me, Sir Nigel, my man Dan DeStefano. Stefano. Okay. Then it really right. cuts it down a little bit. You know, maybe somebody brings some pizza uh, and then it's not too bad. I feel like part of the appeal for something like this is, uh, you know, A, if they get together a a huge card, then... You know, I do want to see Michael Chandler fight again, and if you can find, if you can make that Eddie Alvarez fight again, that does feel like it's worth paying for, although I feel like that's a big if. Like, you're going to be going to Eddie Alvarez, basically, and saying, hey, look, we're doing this pay-per-view. That means you're going to lose in court. You might as well get in while the getting's good, and you're going to hope that Eddie Alvarez has just had enough of this legal bullshit and says, fine, which I don't know if he will. It seems like he's kind of committed to this at this point. Um, but B, I feel like part of the appeal, at least for the super hardcore MMA fans, is, Oh, I gotta see this shit. I gotta see how bad this thing is or how weird it is or if it's halfway decent at all. Um, just so that later when everybody's on the internet talking shit about it, I can talk shit about it too. Uh, or if they're saying, you know, how they're pleasantly surprised, I can say some shit about that too. You know, I feel, but I mean, that's what that 20,000 buys, maybe if you're lucky. Like that doesn't get you very far.
1: Uh, It's weird to me that anyone would, would want to watch rampage Tito to like to even trash on it to even talk about how shitty it was because we all know what it's going to look like it's going to look just like all of their most recent fights in the UFC they're both going to go out there and 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 do the old soft shoe around the cage and Quinn Jackson's going to win a a unanimous decision probably you know no one's getting stopped there's you know it's not like it's not like Tito Ortiz is going to throw throw up a triangle or a You know, Quinn Rampage Jackson's not going to catch him in an arm
2: bar. Afterwards, Tito will reveal that uh, he he fought this fight on no stomach. He had his stomach surgically
1: removed. Uh, One of the weirdest things about this is that now Tito Ortiz and Rampage Jackson are also both in TNA professional wrestling. Uh, Tito Ortiz... uh, Made a surprise appearance on the last episode, which I guess we were all supposed to clap TNA on the back for surprising us and successfully pulling off a wrestling angle. Go figure. Uh, But to me, the idea of trying to promote a legitimate fight by having these guys go on professional wrestling is just bizarre, right?
2: It just makes no sense. Well, I guess it makes sense in that if you're Bellator, man, you got to promote it everywhere you can fucking get. To me,
1: it's like, okay, if you operate from the understanding that it's 2013 and professional wrestling is a television show, uh, anybody who doesn't look at professional wrestling as a television show, they, they and I are not speaking the same language. I don't understand people that are like, oh, man, that's so fake. Like, of course it's fake, dude. It's a TV show. So to me, going on TNA to promote your MMA fight, it's a little bit like if Peyton Manning and... Uh, uh, Tom Brady both guest starred on Hawaii Five O the week of the Super Bowl as dudes who are about to play in a really big game. It just like it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what what do you possibly accomplish? Well, by the difference doing is you
2: that? don't need to promote the hell out of the Super Bowl. Uh, I'm talking about it in a world in which you did. Okay, my novel predisp- presupposes <laughs> maybe you do. Okay, but I, I understand why. Uh, if you're Bellator and you're thinking, man, this could be an uphill climb, and you get it in your or your Viacom, and you're thinking, like, how, how do you get people interested in this? Okay, well, who can we reach easily, especially if that audience already has a habit of paying for pay per views? They already expect that anybody buying those
1: TNA pay per views. Yeah, but man.
2: wrestling fans uh, are one of the few, like, when you think about pay per view. It's a weird thing in sports that other sports, like if you're, uh, you know, mainly a pro football and baseball fan, the idea of paying for a pay-per-view might just be totally fucking foreign to you. You don't, Pay to watch sports on TV. Sports I on TV feel like are free. People
1: know the deal with fight sports. People are familiar with the fact that Mike Tyson used to fight on pay per view. Yeah, it doesn't mean they that know they know for bought a fight them. you have to you have to shell out some money and watch it on pay per view. But I feel like to me, even... putting them on professional wrestling just weirdly muddies the waters of of what exactly the fuck we're talking about here.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with that, and I I also feel like that's the kind of thing where like you got two dudes who keep talking about how they're friends, right? And they're also old, and they also need to make this money. And then you got them on pro wrestling, you know, sneering at each other and stuff like that. Uh, And then you have them fight. If the fight is not obviously, you know, smashing each other's faces in, if there is any hint that they might be like, Hey, let's, let's do our rounds and let's go home and get our money. If there's any hint of that, it's catastrophic for Bellator. Yeah. And it doesn't even, you wouldn't even have to have any real basis for that accusation just because of all the stuff you mentioned. And because, Hey, just, let's be honest, there there could be a way that this fight does not really have a whole lot of action. There just, could be a way. Just be, yeah, okay. it's it's reasonable to think that maybe there won't be a ton of action between these two over-the-hill fighters. And even if they're trying hard or think that they're trying hard, there could you could still end up afterwards having people accuse you. I mean people accuse that Anderson Silver Chris widen fight of being a work when the dude get knocked out. So you could see how that kind of shit could totally backfire on them. I guess the feeling maybe with Bellator now is shit, man, they got to try something. You know,
1: I I guess Uh, We're going to run out of time But let's briefly touch on this Eddie Alvarez I saw it floated in a couple of places That Bellator is putting together this pay-per-view For the express purpose of luring Eddie Alvarez back Cutting him in on it And and thereby circumventing their legal issues with him To me, it seems like the exact opposite might be true Because if you're Eddie Alvarez's lawyer Don't you think to yourself Maybe we sit this one out We find out how many buys the Bellator pay-per-view does We go back to a judge and say Look, these dudes did 20,000 buys on their pay-per-view. UFC is doing 500,000 if, you know, we get put on the right card. Uh that's just not a match. Like what how, how are you how do you see this But issue?
2: if you get put on the right card, which is and you know, maybe the UFC is making it easier on uh Bellator these days with, you know, the the card in Winnipeg did not do great pay-per-view numbers. What people say that this one in Rio probably did not do great pay-per-view numbers. Uh, Again, getting the UFC's actual accurate pay per view numbers might be uh, a little more difficult. That would be one of the problems. But uh, I could definitely see how this could backfire if Bellator is going to, you know, if you're doing a pay per view to prove that you can do pay per views. Because, man, pay per view is not that easy. Especially if you're just going to jump to pay per view from a spike show that's doing okay, you know, that's not exactly setting the world on fire. It's tough to to transition that audience into a paying pay per view audience, especially if it's going to be like 45 or 50 bucks in some places. Man, ain't nobody trying to pay 45, 50 bucks to see that pay per view. Not unless you get Bob Slap versus a cartoon character. And sell me.
1: And Ben
2: Askren versus a polar bear. All right. Well,
1: let's do just saying stuff and we'll get out of here for this week. Just saying stuff, as you all know, the part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we're not asked to back up or follow up on or support in any way because we are in fact just saying stuff ben this week uh i know that brian stan is gets an almost unreasonable amount of of love from the mma media uh Uh, past episodes of this show included, uh, but I feel compelled to join the chorus this week of people already saying that he did a tremendous job sitting in for Joe Rogan on color commentary during UFC uh, 163. I felt like he brought a very legitimate sport vibe to his commentary. It's got a definite different feeling than what you normally get out of the UFC broadcast team. So this week, I'm just saying, maybe we keep him there full time. Maybe we go three-man booth with Joe Rogan, Mike Goldberg, and Brian Stan all the time. I would not argue with that. I'm just saying. Just saying.
2: I, I don't know if you noticed, though, that Brian Sand is going to be doing college football Saturdays this fall. so That's during be. the
1: daytime. He could jump on a plane. You could make this happen. Yeah,
2: he'd be in Rio in no time. Uh, Chad, I'm just saying that during today's press conference, conference call, Bellator thing, uh, Rampage Jackson said that he would still like that boxing match with Roy Jones Jr. And at one point said, quote, that Roy Jones Jr. was, quote, very interested in fighting me. <laughs> yes, I'm just saying, I bet he was. I, I bet, bet Roy he Jones was. Jr. really is interested in a boxing match with Rampage Jackson because shit, man, Roy Jones Jr. could use a little extra money, right? Just saying.
1: Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week uh, to continue breaking down the wild and woolly world of pro- uh, professional mixed martial arts. As for right now, we're done, we're through, we're out. <laughs> Roy Jones Jr., just hanging around looking for an aging MMA fighter to fight. Which, who, doesn't matter who,
2: any one of them. He'll take any one of them. Which one of you knuckleheads wants to get punched in the face by Roy Jones Jr.?
1: Uh, We're talking about a boxing